Well, uh, we're back in the book of Ephesians. We had a couple of week break because of uh, figuring out this theme, and we had a mission Sunday last Sunday. I do intend to continue the theme of, of or the, the book of Ephesians, walking through the study of Ephesians. And it, I just want you to know, it may not be, uh, if, if it feels a little bit to you like it's a, like we're doing this, and we're doing this, and we're kind of doing two separate things, I would encourage us to see that, quite frankly, the book of Ephesians fits very, very, very well into the theme of making disciples. There's going to be a lot of things that you think about being a disciple or making disciples or teaching them to obey. There's a lot of those themes that will show up in the book of Ephesians, primarily the first and the third, by the way. There's a lot of Ephesians. We're about ready to turn a corner in Ephesians, actually. We're not quite there yet, but we're, we're about ready to turn the corner in Ephesians, uh, where Paul is going to transition from what I would call a lot of theology, a lot of, of what we believe, and turn that corner and say, I'm really going to talk to you now about how that's supposed to look in your life. So when you read chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, which we'll get there before too long, then, uh, then that's really going to be packed with application. Here's all the stuff we believe. Here's all the stuff we, we're saying is true about what Jesus did for us. And we're going we're gonna to still be wrapping a bit of that up here today in the next couple of weeks. But the reason we're talking about that is because it has to make a difference in our life, right? That's the reason why we have this theme of making disciples. It, it's great if you come to church and you hear sermons and, you, and you've read the Bible and you study it and you can tell me what it says. But if that doesn't change what happens in your life, then we haven't accomplished a whole lot. And uh, it's that which is going to be uh, Paul uh, first, first most in, in Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. So being a disciple is, of course, a huge part of it. And, of course, uh, wrapped into it because of the cyclical nature of what, of what making disciples is all about. Uh, the last part, teaching them to obey, is also a really big part of that because you're gonna, we're going to be reading a lot of things of how the, as how the church interacts with, each, with itself or with how the members of the church interact with each other. This is, in fact, partly why we're going to get some of the things we're going to talk about today and have talked about the last couple of weeks. Well, enough introduction. Let's get rolling here. Ephesians, we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 3, the first six verses. And it's been a couple of weeks, uh, but it actually works out really well. We're going to do a little bit of review just to make sure that we're, uh, we're carrying through what we learned so far into this morning's text. Paul writes this, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel." God, would you bless the reading of your word this morning, but even more than that, would you bless uh, our participation in the studying of the word this morning? Would you break it open to us, and in your blessing, would it make a difference by your blessing, through your blessing, through your Spirit's presence, the illumination of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, and the drawing of our hearts and minds to who you are as our Father, may it make a difference in our life. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. I entitled the sermon this morning, uh, The Mystery of Christ. That word mystery shows up uh, three times in the text this morning. So Paul is talking about some kind of mystery, and uh, maybe we'll try to clear up that mystery, because I'm going to tell you it's not really a mystery from our perspective anymore. 
It's what he was referring to as what it had been before. It's not a mystery uh, to us anymore. We're going to see, actually, he declares exactly what that mystery is. But I called it the mystery of Christ. And I want to jump in with the very first verse because it's a good place to start. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he says, on behalf of you Gentiles, but I would urge us as good, studious readers of the Bible that right away when we see that opening phrase, for this reason, that we stop for just a brief moment and we immediately allow the most natural question in the world to pop into our heads. What do you think that question should be? For what reason, right? If Paul writes, for this reason, da-da-da-da-da, then we should immediately say, for what reason? For what reason? Because if, if, there's a, if there's a rationale or an impetus for why Paul's about to say something, I want to know what that is. I don't have a glass of water for this morning. I'm wondering if somebody could grab me some water. If I get too excited, then my, apparently my throat still doesn't like that too much. For what reason, for what reason is Paul about to say the things that he's going to say? Now, I think it would be absolutely correct, by the way, to just, just answer that off the top of your head by saying, well, everything is written so far. For the reason of, for all the things that he's gone through. So that's kind of, you know, kind of a, a pointless point you'd made, Merlin, because it would just read chapter one and two, and it's for that reason. That's the reason. But I would tell you more specifically that Paul is pointing to chapter 2 and the content that's contained in there. Now, he did open up with some incredible things, but his, his instructions specifically to the Gentile believers uh, that are in Ephesus uh, that he's addressing, uh, he's, he's, he's saying there's some things I've said in chapter 2 specifically, and I want to use this opportunity to remind us because it's going to be very important when we get to the end of the message to remind, remind us of some things that Paul has done. You remember that we had these, Paul wrote two different times these three sets of together with words. Remember we talked about this together with thing a number of times. So I'll just put the words up there again for you. Thank you, sir. You don't need to be a Greek scholar. You don't need to know how to say those words. I don't even know if I'm saying them correctly. I'm doing as well as I can from memory by the, by the uh, Strong's Concordance Guide that I have on how to say these words. But we bumped into these three words in the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 2, where Paul is making the point that we used to be dead in the sins and trespasses that we used to walk. We actually worked on memorizing that. I don't know how many of you still know that or could say that, or how many of you could at all at any point. But he's making a point that we used to be dead because of our sin, but God made us alive, and that's where uh, the first, uh, those first uh, words comes from. Suja apoyeho means that God made us alive together with. So in every one of these cases, I think we walked through this already, but just a quick reminder, in every one of these words you're about to see that you have a hard time pronouncing, the beginning of that word is the same. It's the uh, prefix, uh, soon is the word by itself, S-U-N, but sometimes you don't get the N, sometimes you get a G, sometimes you get, because it depends on what word it's put with. But it means the same thing in every case. It means the word that's after that, and then you can basically say together with because that's what it means, together with. Soon means to, like putting something together, together with. So we were made alive together with, <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that, with Jesus. The next word is sunegairo, which means we were raised. Egairo means to raise. So we were raised together with Jesus. And the next word is sunkatizo, which means we were seated together with Jesus. Quick reminder, where's Jesus at? Where's Jesus at? 
He's at the right hand. So if we were seated with Jesus, actually Paul actually says that if you go back and read that verse, where are we seated with him at? In the heavenly places, right? That's what he says, in the heavenly places, at the right hand of God. Uh, just again, quick, quick review. This is, I, this is kind of unfair of me because I'm the one that's reading this, you know, all week long. Well, not all week long, but I spend time doing this and you don't. But why did God do the things I just talked about? Why did God make us alive together with Jesus and raise us up together with Jesus and seat us with Jesus in the heavenly places? If you memorize your verses, you know why. Why did God do that? Or if you want to, oh, what's that? Because of his great love, that is correct. If you want to cheat, you can go back and read verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. Why doesn't somebody read that for us this morning? Nice and loud. Do you understand what Kirvin, maybe, I don't know if you heard what Kirvin read. I'll say it from up here. God did those, right in the heels of those three words, God did those things so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So let's translate that. Why did God do those things? Why did God, why did God make you alive again after you were dead in your sins? Why did God raise you up again? And why did God seat you with him, with Jesus in the heavenly places? For his glory, thank you, someone said it back there. For his glory, that's what Paul just wrote. So that he could put the immeasurable riches of his glory on display so that everyone could see how great God is. I say that, I'm getting, I'm getting caught up in other things, but it needs to be said because you're all, I want you to know this. You have to know this. It's really important. All of this is about God's glory and, and declaring the wonder of who he is. So it's great. I mean, this is going to sound really bad. I think you've heard me say things like this. So it's probably not unusual for you. It's going to sound really bad. But as great as it is for us that God saved us and made us alive again and, and raised us, it's not about us. It's not about us. He did that to show the world and everybody in it how amazing he is, how surpassingly rich and glorious his grace toward us is in Christ Jesus. So, that did not, I was not going to spend that much time with those three words. Then traveling on in chapter 2, he says, let me just make a logical conclusion for you. If you and you and you and you and you and you and every individual in here that's received Jesus Christ, if all of you individually were made alive together with Jesus and were raised up together with Jesus and were seated with Jesus, and he did that for all of you as individuals, then by logical extension, that means he did it for all of us together. That's where all of us are in the same place. And that's the point he's making uh, going on in chapter two then. He says... You were at one point, speaking to Gentiles, you were at one point alienated and separated. You were not part of the promise, but now in Christ Jesus you have been brought close. And he brings these three words now. These are now words for each of us with each other. The first three were us with Jesus, by the way. These are us with each other. We are sum polites, which means we are citizens together with each other. Every one of us are citizens. That comes in. Uh, chapter 2, 
verse 19. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are soon armalogeho. We are closely joined together with each other. Again, these are, these are not words with us and Jesus, although it's true because of us and Jesus. These are words with us, with each other. That's the whole point Paul is making. We are closely joined together with each other. Soon oikadameho means we are being built or constructed together with each other. We are being built or constructed together with each other. Being built or constructed together with each other into what? What kind of house is God building? What's the purpose of this house that God is building? What's the point? Why, would, why is God building us up together with each other? Yeah, very last verse we read in Ephesians chapter, 20, or chapter 2. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's spirit is dwelling. And I, I ended with this verse. I don't know how many weeks ago it was that we stopped with, with Ephesians, but I ended with this verse. And I think I said something like this. It is true that God's Holy Spirit dwells in us as individuals. Scripture makes that clear. But one thing we often in our individualistic interpretation of Scripture, one thing we often miss or don't see or don't want to see or don't acknowledge is that much of what is written in the New Testament is written to a group of believers, and so much of what is written should be interpreted as a group of believers, and this is a primary example of that. You see, we can read that like individually to say, hey, I'm being built as a dwelling place. But the problem is he says we are being built together. And together, as the body of Christ, we are the dwelling place of God. Not just me by myself. Not just you by yourself. Together. We're going to see this become a lot more clear. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when we get to later in Ephesians. But he's making that point. Now, long, long introduction to for this reason... But Paul says, for this reason, <clears throat> because I want you to realize, because I've just helped you realize that as individuals you were made alive with Jesus and raised with him and seated with him. But together, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter if you're, if you're rich or poor, doesn't matter if you're handsome or ugly, doesn't matter if you're whatever, pick whatever opposites you want, whether you're in or out, doesn't matter what your station of life is, there is no more dividing wall between you if you are in Christ. There's no more dividing wall. For that reason, and now I want to tell you that Paul actually interrupts himself and doesn't finish the statement until we get to verse 14. So we're going to have to hang on for a couple of weeks before we get what he's about to say based on what he just said in chapters 1 and 2. The rest of, we should read, I think, we should read the rest of uh, Ephesians 3, the first 13 verses. We should read as a parenthetical statement you notice in your Bible, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then there's a dash, at least in my Bible there is, and then he says, oh, by the way, this made me think of something. Assuming you know why I'm writing this to you. Assuming you know these things, and he's going to repackage some things in our text this morning that we've already talked about, 
And he's going to make sure we know how he fits in there. Why Paul is writing to him about this. So we're actually going to finish. This is, I mean, if you, again, if you look down in verse 14, you look down in verse 14, he's going to say the same thing. For this reason, I, and we're going to finish that thought. So we're going to get there in a couple of weeks with something that's really incredible. I can't wait till we get there, but we're not there yet. If I could have a couple of you, some of you specifically, just pray for my throat. It is really throwing me a curveball here this morning. It's been fine all week. I've talked a ton all week. Ask my wife and anybody else too. <laughs> but boy, it is, uh, it is really throwing me a curveball here this morning. I'm finding it really hard to speak. So if some of you would just pray specifically for my throat, I would really appreciate that. <clears throat> well, does it bother you to have a cough drop in my mouth when I'm trying to talk? And sometimes that kind of clinks around and it gets a little, let's wait and see. Pray first. We'll let God take care of it. There is some instruction, however, we can glean from these verses that I want to do this morning. First of all, I want want you to see that Paul is being consistent with his own teaching he's had so far. Remember at the end of chapter 2, verse 10? Not the end of chapter 2. At at the middle of chapter 2 and verse 10, he says we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, and we are created in Christ Jesus. And we spent a lot of time talking about redemption and what redemption means. And I hope that we've spent enough time talking about it that you know this by now. But when we are redeemed by Jesus, what does that mean in regards to ownership for you and I? When we are redeemed by Jesus, what does that mean in regards to ownership for you and I? What's that? Somebody pointed and I heard it a little bit. What does that mean? I, 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 if I can't talk, I'm going to make you guys talk. We're owned by him, right? If we are redeemed by Jesus, then he owns us. And to show you that Paul was okay with exactly that, Fisherman's friend, or a preacher's friend this morning. Thank you, Marcus. To show you that Paul is not inconsistent with himself, look what he calls himself. He says, I, Paul, am a, I don't have it up there anymore, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, uh, to be fair, let's make sure we understand context. Paul is literally a prisoner. I mean, he literally is in chains at this moment when he's writing this. But I don't think that's actually all that Paul's talking about. I think he's referring to the fact because he refers to himself this no matter what. So there are some New Testament letters he wrote that when he was not in prison. And, and he still referred to himself as a, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. So he is referring to the fact that Jesus Christ has redeemed him and he belongs to him. And then he goes on to say some things about why he's there, why he's writing, why, why he's a prisoner and why he has even a reason to write the Ephesians. He says... I'm assuming you know why I'm doing this. I'm assuming you've heard about what happened to me. And no doubt, he's thinking back to Acts chapter 9, which is when he was converted. Mitch, I'm going to need more water. <laughs> he's looking back at Acts chapter 9, but I want to read the verses that, uh, where he summarizes them as he's talking to King Agrippa, because that's a little, little more concise. You can flip there with me if you want. It's in Acts chapter 26. I'm going to read those for you. Acts chapter 26, he's te- telling King Agrippa about his experience of, uh, of the light and the voice and the discussion he had with who was Jesus. And as he's, as he's being told, you know, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, Paul speaking first person, he says, 
And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. And then he says this, speaking of the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, if you go back a little bit and reread the verses I just read, if you have it up in front of you, I have it up on the screen here too if you want to see it there. Go back and reread that a little bit and then think about what Paul has been writing to the Ephesians. Think about the stuff I just reviewed with you that Paul has been writing to the Ephesians. When Jesus converted Saul on the road to Damascus, he's told him very specifically that I'm going to send you to the Gentiles so that you can open their eyes. They may turn from the power of darkness, the power of Satan, into uh, to the kingdom of light. And they may turn from Satan to God. And that they may receive forgiveness and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, what are the themes that Paul has talked about the entire way through Ephesians so far? I'll tell you, it's exactly those things, isn't it? He's telling them that you... I, that your eyes should be opened because you used to be dead, but now you're alive. You used to be in darkness, now you're in light. You used to be under the control of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, now you're under God's control. You have forgiveness. doesn't matter that you're Gentiles. You have forgiveness of your sins, and by the way, can I tell you the greatest news of all? You have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. You belong. Once again, I have to point this out because I, I, I feel sometimes like we, we get into these discussions about Jews and Gentiles, and I feel like sometimes people's eyes get kind of like, oh, you're talking about Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we are the Gentiles. Like, this is, the, this is critically important to us because we are the ones that were on the outside. We are the ones who rejoiced in the book of Acts, our forefathers, the ones that rejoiced in the book of Acts because they found out that Jesus was for them too and not just for the Jews. That's all of us. If those things wouldn't be true, you wouldn't be here this morning. Paul says to the Ephesians, I want you to see the things that I have been writing to you so far as exactly the outcome, exactly the fulfillment of what Jesus said I should be doing. I came to you, I lived with you, I told you all the things that Jesus said I was supposed to tell you, and I'm writing them to you now as a reminder. You can see the insight that was given to me. He goes on to say in verse 4, and I'm going to transition to this verse now. In verse 4, he says, when you read this, the letter, then you'll see the insight that has been given to me in this mystery of Christ. This mystery. Let's talk about that word for a little bit. Paul uses it three times, like I said. It's a mystery of Christ. And I think I think there's sometimes, at least I've had some interaction with some people that get a little, they get a little caught up in this mystery of Christ thing and this, the, the revelation that Paul has and that, that uh, somehow there's some kind of different program that God is doing 
through Paul and what he's been doing before. And I don't know if you've ever interacted with people like that, and hopefully you haven't, but I don't think that's what's going on at all. I do want to give reference to the fact that he says this is a mystery that has been uh, closed. The eyes of those that came before us were closed to this, that they did not, it was not made known to the sons of men, in other, if I just read it here, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And I want you to see that Jesus actually referred to the same thing. Did you know that in Matthew? Uh, multiple Gospels, but I'll show you the verse in Matthew. Jesus said to his followers, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus himself referred to the fact that there were things that the, these were not unrighteous people, but that righteous people of God all through the ages have longed to see and hear and understand, and by God's sovereign wisdom decided they weren't going to see and hear. It was not going to be in their time. Think of all the prophets in the Old Testament that talked about this Messiah and didn't see it. Hebrews talks about this, by the way. That all those people left, they followed God, they obeyed him, they followed him in faith and never got to see. Never got to see. And Jesus says, now you're seeing and hearing some things. I'm going to tell you, Paul is saying, we now even understand some things that we didn't even understand when Jesus was walking around. I want you to make sure you make a distinction, though. Not, not seeing and understanding something does not mean it wasn't true. Did you see what? Let me just. So, just the fact that the uh, people didn't know everything about Jesus or understand it doesn't mean it wasn't true. So, in other words, I'm trying to make sure you see that God didn't change His mind. He didn't. He didn't start off by saying, "Well, I'm going to I'm going to work through Abraham and I'm going to choose the Jews." And then, well, that didn't work out too well because they weren't too faithful. He said, "Well, let me just let me just broaden out a little bit and maybe maybe include a few other people yet too, because that seemed like a really small thing. Maybe it didn't work out so well. It wasn't like that at all, right? It wasn't like God changed His mind. It was an unfolding understanding of what God had been doing from the beginning. Darren mentioned it this morning in our Sunday school class, and I can say it here." Why did God choose to do it that way and work along the timeline he did and work through the people he did? I don't know. That's at God's discretion. If we're going to let God be God, which I would suggest to us we should, if we're going to let God be God, then it's at his discretion. I don't know why. It is actually one of the fundamental places that our obedience and faith in God bumps up into our limitations and our, real, our realization that we don't get to call those shots. And if we're going to let God be God, we have to be okay with that. I would tell you there's a really good chance in, if you take this whole big thing I've just talked about down to a micro level of our own journeys, there's a really good chance that there's things that we don't understand yet either about what Jesus is doing. Doesn't mean they're not true. Just means we haven't seen it yet. Our eyes haven't been opened to it. Why? I don't know. Again, I don't know why God works on the timeline he does. I have to let him be God. But Paul says, there were things that were closed to the eyes of those back then that we now see, and it's this mystery that I'm talking about. But notice he makes it clear right up front that it's not just him. It's not like he, Paul has some unique insight that no one else has. For in the very next verse, he says, it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Plural, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's referring to all those men and women, but all those brothers in Christ that are out doing the similar work that he's doing in bringing Jesus to the nations. 
And he's saying, we understand things that for some reason, because God didn't bring it about yet, the ones that came before us didn't understand. And we want you to know these things. It was a mystery. It's something that is being revealed. These holy apostles and the prophets. Remember, Paul said this back in chapter 2. That the church is being built, this, this house is being built, this dwelling place is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That reaches back to all those that didn't know, but also more specifically and more recently to those that are working alongside of Paul right now. Again, maybe you've never bumped up to it. I have myself, and so I just want to make sure you understand. Paul is not claiming to have some kind of spiritual insight or knowledge that nobody else has. Or that he's starting some program, that God started some program through Paul that he's not interested in with other people. He's simply saying, as time has gone on, the revealing things have happened where we now see some things that we didn't see before. And I'll just tell you what that mystery is. It's something we've actually already talked about. So to call it a mystery doesn't seem kind of anticlimactic to us. But it was a mystery to them because they did not know that at the time. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, they're members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is something he's actually already talked about in chapter 2. But he wants them to again see, remember he interrupted himself, he says, I want you to see the whole picture of why I am interacting with you, and why I'm writing to you, and why I'm passionate about these things, because God revealed to me that you are all part of the plan too, and I can't wait to let you know it, and I want you to grow in that, and to grow, and to grow, and to grow, until you come into mature believers yourselves. That's what I'm doing, and, that's, and I want you to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not just... Like, it's not just my thing. It's what God has been doing the entire time. Now, he wrote these words uh, pretty clearly in the book of Galatians. I want to read them for you this morning. Similar sounding words, but I think uh, just to get you corroboration that Paul talks about this a lot. It's a lot of what the New Testament talks about, actually. In Galatians chapter uh, 3, verses 27 to 29, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There it is, writing to the Galatians in that case, same kind of thing he's saying to the Ephesians here. This mystery, this thing that has not been revealed yet up until this point, is that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of the same body as every other person who has faith in Jesus Christ. There's no more distinction. I said this earlier, I'll say it again. He says Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. I use some other words, but it's the same contrast. Up, down, high, low, in, out, doesn't matter. Your ethnicity, your station in life, doesn't matter. When you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, you are in Christ, and that wall is broken down. And can I just, can I just, can I just say up front, and I think it's good for us to all be able to say this up front, we're not always very good at with this, are we? We like to make a lot of divisions still, make, the, make a lot of differentiations, a lot of separations. And I want to be careful with that because I also believe that much of what Jesus does through the Holy Spirit is separation. But sometimes those lines of separation for us come down in the wrong places, I think. 
It's not that we're not supposed to be separated. It's just that we struggle with knowing what we're supposed to be separated or who we're supposed to be separated from. This mystery is that the Gentiles are the... Hold on. I showed you that verse in English, but in doing so, you missed something that Paul is doing, what I think is actually the thing he's driving towards. And you missed it because you didn't read the Greek. You didn't, know, you, didn't, you didn't see the Greek word. So I'm just going to help you out and show you that verse again and see if you can figure out why, to me, this is a really important verse. This mystery is that the Gentiles are sum kleranomas, susamas, and sumetakas of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What do you notice about those words? I mean, other than you can't pronounce them? Yeah. Guess what he did? Here, maybe it'll make it easier if I do this. There's three more words that Paul said, I'm going to continue talking about this theme. By the way, if at this point you are not convinced that one of the major things that Paul wants to convince the Ephesians is, is that they are together in some way, I think we're missing the Ephesians so far. Here's the third set of three words that Paul says, we are together with each other. We are together with each other. Now, these three words, sunkleranamos, means we are heirs together with. We actually were introduced to the root of this word, the klerojo. We're introduced to that word way back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, when Paul is going through and delineating the blessings we have in Christ. The second one was that we have obtained an inheritance, each of us. When we're in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And here he says, I just want you to see that again and know that we are heirs together with each other. It's not like I obtained some inheritance and yours is different. Or you obtained some inheritance and mine is different. Or you over here did and these people don't have access to it. They, uh, we obtain an inheritance together with each other. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 8. Let me read these verses for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But listen to this next part. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may also be glorified with him. By the way, there's the exact same word, the soon kleranomas, and fellow heirs with Christ. So we are heirs with each other. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I don't, once again, I don't know if you ever stop and think about stuff like this. I think you should. But when's the last time you stopped and thought about, what is, what is Jesus going to receive? What's his inheritance? I mean, you don't, I, it's okay if you answer. You don't have to. It's really kind of an exercise in helping you see where we're going here. I mean, you could name a bunch of things, right? His father's throne, everything, right? Everything. Jesus will be Lord of everything, everyone. What does it do to you to know that Paul wrote and we together, all of us, are joint heirs, fellow heirs, sum kleranomas, with Jesus. I got to be honest with you. I, I, I don't understand stuff like that. I see what Jesus did, what he went through. And I don't, think I, even, I don't think I even get all the way to understanding the depths of what Jesus did. But I still can understand at some level 
the suffering that Jesus did. The, 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 the shame and the, awful, the awfulness of being God and being rejected by his own creation and being put to death. I see what Jesus did and it does not make sense to me why he would share what he's getting as a result of that with me or with any of us, quite frankly. And yet, and yet, it is my incredible privilege to tell you that's exactly what Scripture says. <laughs> what do you do with stuff like that? Like, how do you compute that? What, how, what do you do with that? What can you do with that other than realize that this is far bigger than me and you and is totally worth our total obedience and our total devotion to him? We are heirs together with. Susamas means that we are a body or a member. The word soma is the word for body. That's the root back there. But it also in this case means member. We are a body or member together with. We are members of each other. We are part of the body together with each other. Now, this is actually something Paul is going to develop in Ephesians a bit more. So we're going to actually revisit this theme a little bit as we get to Ephesians chapter 4. But he also writes about it pretty extensively in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to read just a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to illustrate that to you. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the, and all the, members of the body, though many, are one body... So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And he uses similar language we've heard all morning long. Jews are Greeks, slave are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And he goes on, and he has a much lengthier explanation, but the point can be made with us already this morning. When we even look at our own physical bodies, that's what Paul is, is, is making a reference to, is making a parallel to. When you look at our own physical bodies, you recognize there's a lot of different body parts to it, right? There's a lot of systems going on all at once. There's a lot of things that are done differently by different parts but it's all one body. You would say that I have one body. You wouldn't say I have lots of bodies. You'd say I have one body, but I have lots of parts to my body. And Paul says, I need you to see yourself in the same way with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I tell you again, I think there are times that we really, really struggle with this. To truly see ourselves as members of the same body. Maybe not so much like here, like us in this room, that can be difficult too sometimes. But, but I think more like across the body of Christ. People are very different, aren't they? People think very differently about things, don't they? People don't see things like we see them. And I'm your pastor standing up here and saying, I don't know what to do with all that all the time. Because even in our setting, people don't see things all the same way. But we're all pretty close to being alike. Somehow, if I believe that I'm a joint heir with the whole body of Christ, I got to see myself as being a joint member with the whole body of Christ and come back down to the last part of it, that we are all sumetakas, we are all participants together with, with each other in the promise 
of Jesus Christ. Every single one who wants to receive these promises of Jesus Christ in faith has equal access to them and is a co-participant in them. Now, you could just go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and spend some time there with the blessings in Christ text that we studied there about what those promises are. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have obtained an inheritance. We have received, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, the keeper of, of us till we get there, till we see the reality of it. But let me just share with you briefly this morning a couple of other promises found in the New Testament about what is ours and what we together are co-participants in. Galatians 3.14 says, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's a pretty big one. That through Christ Jesus, those of us who are Gentiles, again, I remind you, that's all of us, but along with those who are Jews, anyone really, might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, it's the point that you don't have to have some specific pedigree for God to say, I'm going to put my spirit there in your container. You don't have to achieve some mark. You receive it through faith. In fact, I would tell you, as a few of you are well aware of and have communicated to me that you are well aware of, is that if you want to have to satisfy the marks to receive the Holy Spirit, then all of us are going to fall woefully short. All of us will fall woefully short. The promised spirit is something we are all co-participants in. 1 John 1.3 says that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Kind of the same idea, that, that co-participation. You may have fellowship with us. But he goes on to say, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So one very cool promise. I'm just picking a couple of them. You could pick others in Scripture, by the way. But one very cool promise is that we can have the, the Spirit. We can have God's Spirit. But this one extends it out a little bit. We can have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, as well. And again, I tell you, if that doesn't do something inside of you to recognize that there's some kind of fellowship you can have with the Creator of the universe, I don't know what I can ever tell you to make you excited about anything. There's nothing left, right? If you go to the top and say, the coolest thing ever, and that doesn't excite us, then I'm not sure. Uh, nothing will. It means we don't want to be excited. It means we have other things in our minds that we don't care about, whatever you're talking about. We have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. On a much more personal level, by the way, can I just say this to you? On a much more personal level, if, if that feels too grand and too vague and too... I don't know what the right word is, but too out there for you because you can have fellowship with the creator of the universe. How about this? You can have fellowship with the one who loved you and died for you and paid a price for you that you could never pay, whose blood flowed because of your sinfulness, who paid something for you that you should have paid and he took it for you and he turned right around and said, I did that so that you and I can have fellowship. That makes it a lot more personal, doesn't it? That's a lot more, that's individual to you and to every one of us. The one whose precious lifeblood slipped away for your sake and in your place will give his fellowship, his right hand of fellowship to you. And just a few verses later in the next chapter, 
John says, this is a promise that he made to us, that all of us are co-participants in. Two words. Eternal life. There's not a single one of us who has not been exposed to death and the realities of death in our experience as humans because of our sinfulness. The pain it causes, the separation it causes, the hurt, the loneliness. There's not a single one of us that probably, if we've ever thought about it for five seconds, don't realize or haven't thought about the, the intimidation and the worry and the fear that can be associated with death. Because it's the end, Right? There's several of us in this room that have stared it much more closely in the face than any of the rest of us have. So you probably think about it differently than even I do. So for God to look at us and say, I'm going to promise something to you, and that promise is eternal life, is something so that when, when you look at death or think of death, that you can actually think of it as a doorway and not an end. I think that should mean a lot to us. It's the thing we hang our hat on, right? It's the hope that we have. It's the rock that we're standing on. Is that what Jesus did? Yes, it made so that we can receive his spirit and we are a co-participant of that. And yes, it made so that uh, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with Jesus himself and we are co-participants of that. But it made so that we can look at death as a doorway and we will step through that someday into eternity with all those people I just named, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, no more separation, no more need for faith, because it'll be sight. That day is coming. And it is what we are co-participants with each other. We're going to kind of have to hang on to this, because he's not done with his inter interruption yet. We're going we're gonna to walk through the rest of it. I didn't think we could cover it all t today, and I thank you, I'm guessing you'll probably thank me for that, so that you're not here any longer yet. But we'll finish the rest of the verses next week, Lord willing, and then we'll come back to, in a couple of weeks, to what Paul was really driving at, I think, when he started this for this reason. But for now, if you would stand with me this morning. Just a reminder again, we'd love to have you stay and eat with us. I'm guessing the food will be about ready. I'm going to have prayer for it here as part of my prayer. And uh, I invite you to stay and hang out with us. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word this morning for your faithfulness to us, for the truth that's contained in it. I pray, Father, that uh, that the things that you wanted to impress upon us this morning, that those pieces, whatever they be, either as a whole or as individuals, I pray, God, that they, they may have taken place today, that we have heard, that our hearts have heard, our minds have heard, our eyes have looked to you, I pray in the name of Jesus against the distractions that were present and against the, the, the way that he wanted to snatch the word away. I pray in Jesus' name against the, the cares of life that want to choke out the word. And I pray in Jesus' name against the, the difficulties that they may not uh, be the discouragement that also snuffs out the power of the word, but that the word that's shared this morning may bring forth fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. Thank you, Christ, for living in me and bringing out any good thing. May you receive glory from that. Thank you for this body. I ask for your blessing upon those that are gathered today. I ask for your blessing on those that were unable to be here with us today. 
I ask for your blessing upon our time together, God. May it be sweet. As we think of these together with words we've been brought to over and over again in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think of the reality of us being together with each other now over food in a way that signifies the fellowship that we have, the co-participation that we have, how we are being built together. And I pray that it may be that, that your spirit would truly be building us, joining us closely together and making us into a fitting dwelling place for your spirit, God, here in this local body. May you be praised and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.